only thing you hear is your own breathing. And then the voice of, you know, whoever's talking to you when you're communicating. There's a there's a hatch that 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 you know faces the earth, you know, and you open that hatch and you look down and then the earth is whizzing by, and you go out at first, and you're hanging there underneath the space station, and um, it's it's the most amazing thing. I, I remember climbing up over the truss and facing the back end of the space station, the aft. And uh, the moon rose as I as I did that, and I just was I just there's nothing between me and the moon, nothing. It's just uh, incredible. Hey, I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and that's NASA astronaut Dr. Gregory Shamatov. Now, Greg is one of about 500 or so humans that have actually been to space, who have seen Earth from an entirely different perspective. A perspective we're going to explore in this episode. Yeah, it's hard to describe. It's, it's really overwhelming. You look, at, you look out the window and you go, is this really the way the, the universe is? When you look around on Earth, your, your, your horizon is short. The most you can have is a view from the top of a mountain or you're standing on a cliff by the ocean or something like that. And here you're looking at the, the whole planet and you see that it's alone. Like it's in this unbelievably vast emptiness and it's, a, it's so alone. Uh, it, it's big and beautiful and amazing, and, but it's alone and it's really, really fragile. You know, one of my colleagues put it really well and he's more religious than I am, but the way he put it was that you feel like you're, you're, you're looking at the earth from God's view. Somehow you're being allowed to see it from God's perspective, and maybe we're not supposed to see it that way. But humans have always looked up into the night sky and tried to make sense or appreciate space. And being an astronaut is one of those epic childhood dreams very few can make a reality. When I was a kid, um, it was, you know, kind of laughable goal. So. My parents would tell people that I wanted to be an astronaut and they would embarrass me, you know. But my father was really the, the um, inspiration. I think I was, you know, the, the Apollo program was all happening at, at a time when I was six years old and, and around that age. And I was watching science fiction on TV with my dad. And we were in Florida for one of the Apollo launches, Apollo 11, the moon landing launch. And I, and I was a kid, but I, I was six years old. I remember on that day, you know, telling my father, that's what I'm going to do. Yep, he did it. So what exactly do you need to do to become an astronaut? One of them would be operational experience. You know, and what I mean by that is operating machinery or, you know, doing something in real time where there's communication, decision making. So like a piloting task where you're, you have to communicate, you have to navigate, you know, there's, there's, there's real time decisions you have to make that have real consequences. When it comes down to it, by the time people interview, they're all very well qualified. It's just a question of who would you rather be stuck with <laughs> six months in a box. So if you're selected among tens of thousands of applicants into NASA, it's 
time to undergo a variety of extremely intense training to become an astronaut. For one exercise, Greg was dropped in a forest in Russia in the middle of winter to undergo survival training. And one of the guys got uh, carbon monoxide poisoning from having, because he had to have a fire inside the tent and uh, the ventilation wasn't good enough. And I found him kind of wandering around in the snow in the middle of the night and he got pulled out of the field. So I was the only one left and I had a Russian crewmate and the whole team you know, that was supporting this was all Russian. And so like on the last day of this, uh, this was a really like sleep deprived you know, exercise. And on the last day of it, I was, I found myself, you know, walking in the woods in the middle of, you know, Northern Russia um, with everyone around, everyone who was watching from a distance or a part of it at all was Russian. And I was, <laughs> and I was like, how did I get here? After years of rigorous mental, physical and technical training, he was ready. And on May 31st in 2008, it was time for Greg to launch as a mission specialist on board space shuttle mission STS-124. T-minus one minute and counting to launch a space shuttle discovery. So you're, you know, you're lying on your back in a chair, you know, and there's a cup and, and, uh, and you're waiting for the countdown to start. T-minus 50 seconds. Transferring the shuttle's internal power now. It's running on its onboard three fuel cells. I just couldn't believe the moment was coming and I, I was thinking about everything in our life that had led up to that. Computers on board Discovery to control the spacecraft. And you just can't believe it because it's a life dream coming true and it's and the, the interesting thing about it, it, it happens in a second. At 10 seconds, we have both main engine start. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Booster ignition and liftoff of Shuttle Discovery. Kambate Kudasai. Best of luck to the International Space Station's newest laboratory. Roger roll, Discovery. One second ago, you know, your live stream has not come true, and then a second later, you're going. <laughs> Four and a half million pounds of hardware and humans taking aim on the International Space Station. And that's just, it's just a little hard to breathe. The, the shaking is, you know that it's not fake. It's real. You, you certainly have the sense that you're sitting on seven and a half million pounds of you know, explosive stuff that has to, you know, get you, get you up there. But you don't spend the time worrying about it. You're committed at that point, you know, and, and it's either you're gonna make it to space or you're not. You may as well enjoy it because, you know, you've already made that commitment. Eight and a half miles downrange, traveling almost a thousand miles an hour. Houston, go and To get to space, it's only eight and a half minutes. Um, we had launched and gone all the way around the world to come back to the same, come back over in Florida again, um, before, long before people could get in their cars and drive off the base. <laughs> so the, your engines turn off in eight and a half minutes, and then, and, and then you're in zero gravity. Once you're in zero gravity, the next step in this amazing adventure is to rendezvous with the International Space Station. It's fairly large and set up like these modules. Uh, and then there's modules outside, a big truss and solar panels. And so if you laid it down on the ground, it required two football fields to lay it down. Yeah, I had no idea how huge it was. And guys, it's also moving really, really, really fast. 28,000 kilometers an hour. Something that big moving that fast, it's, I mean, it's moving many, 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 many more times faster than a bullet. Mind blown. 
So how do you meet up with something that's essentially the size of about 14 buses that's moving faster than a bullet in space? Well, it's all down to orbital mechanics. You end up in an orbit, and the space station's in an orbit, but basically it's a matter of matching orbits, matching altitude and matching speeds and matching orbits. And even though you're moving incredibly fast, your relative speed, you know, is, is not much. You can get it down to, you know, centimetres per second. So once Greg and the crew were able to rendezvous with the space station, part of his six-month mission was to actually finish building it. That's right. The International Space Station was assembled in space. Yeah, we had to bring up individual parts. So it's, it's a, it was a huge assembly process with, you know, dozens of missions to put it all together. Another key objective of Greg's first mission in 2008 was setting up a brand new science lab. A lot of my mission was... Like putting everything together, it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, assembling furniture, <laughs> but more like scientific equipment, laboratory experiments, setting everything up and then checking out the equipment, doing the first experiments on most of their uh, facilities. The main thing that we added at that time was the Japanese experiment module, and that's a beautiful science laboratory. It's the biggest laboratory we have. It has a, um, a platform outside and it has an airlock, so you can actually set up experiments and things and then move them to the outside or bring things back in. It's got its own robotic arm. So I was running the science program in the Japanese, European and US modules. Um, My Russian colleagues were doing the Russian work, whatever was going on over there. Ooh, that's a bit mysterious. So not only was Greg setting up experiments, he kind of was the experiment. In the name of medical research, he had to take his own blood in zero gravity. And on that 2008 mission, He also took some seeds to space, some seeds from some very iconic Australian plant species. You know, the interesting thing here is, you know, is it possible to store, you know, seeds in space uh, and understand the effects of them being in zero gravity and radiation for protecting the species? But for space travel, the important thing is, can we use plants in space to provide food for future missions? Uh, to recycle the oxygen in a natural way. As soon as we go to the moon, you know, Mars, other places, um, you know, the missions are much, much longer. Uh, we need to be self-sufficient. This is, be- is going to become a very important field, space horticulture. That's right, space horticulture. Earlier this year, China successfully sprouted a cotton seedling on the far side of the moon, and it was all over the news. And even though they didn't really last that long, it was the first plant life to grow on the lunar landscape. Now, the seeds that Greg took came from the Australian plant bank at the Australian Botanic Garden, Mount Annan. Yeah, we picked a range of native seeds. That's Dr Peter Cunio. He's the seed bank manager at the Australian plant bank. New South Wales Waratah was an obvious choice for New South Wales. The flannel flower, the Wallamai pine, of course, the iconic pinosaur, as we call it. And, and of course, uh, the acacia pycnant, the, the green and gold acacia. So that's our national floral emblem. So apart from being iconic, why else were the seeds of these species selected for space? I picked seeds that had different seed characteristics uh, and different lifespans in the seed bank. So things like the acacias, very hard seed, long-lived, down to things like Wallamai pine, which probably maximum 10 years in storage. With the seeds selected, the next step was deciding what to test. And they decided to go with... Primarily microgravity. Microgravity is more or less zero gravity, which is what is found on the International Space Station. It just means that the gravitational forces are never quite zero. They're just really, 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 really small. 
So they selected a control batch of seeds to stay on Earth. And the, the, the batch up in space. So once the seeds had gone to space on their six-month mission with Greg, what was the result? We did germination testing, and so we, we compared the two batches. But found, in the end, there was no significant difference between the batches of seeds. I know, I was kind of hoping for some mutant plants or something. But the fact that there was no difference is a good thing for the prospect of growing plants in space. Also, some of the golden wattle seeds that germinated back on Earth even got planted at the Australian Botanic Garden. So what else is happening in the space horticulture domain? French scientists sent some up. Uh, they published a paper in 2012 where they sent up uh, Arabidopsis, which is like a mustard cress. It's kind of the, the guinea pig plant species. This time, the experiment was to expose the mustard cress seeds to cosmic radiation for 18 months. And upon returning to Earth, about 23% of the seeds germinated and produced viable plants. Yeah, some of these seeds can actually survive. So they were proposing that you could even go from Earth to Mars. You can actually send seeds and some would still be viable. Uh, but it's incredible what can survive. Uh, and you know, Algae can survive on, on the outside of the International Space Station as well. And Peter says that because our plants have evolved in such harsh conditions in Australia, they might be just the thing space horticulture is looking for. I mean, things like the, the wattles, you know, they, they, they colonise bare areas, they bring nitrogen into the soil from the air. They're the sorts of characteristics that you're going to be wanting if you're exploring the solar system. Maybe things like acacias or some of the other organisms that we have in Australia could be just the thing if you're exploring other planets. The search for plant and animal species fit for space, as well as biological resources for agriculture or pharmaceuticals on Earth, really focuses on those extreme environments of our planet. By prospecting in extreme environments like Antarctica and deserts, we're finding extreme organisms will grow basically anywhere from deep ocean trenches to freezing Antarctica, and they're the sort of extreme organisms that could well be useful uh, in the future, particularly if you're going space travelling. And that future? That future is now. We have on Earth some places that uh, mimic the conditions what would be on Moon or on uh, Mars. That's Dr. Josephine Gamulia. And she's a biotechnologist from CSIRO's Space Technology Future Science Platform. And these places on Earth that mimic the conditions of celestial bodies are called space analogues. By going to these, uh, we call it space analogues uh, places on Earth, uh, scientists have found that microbes can actually live on these uh, conditions. And that's kind of like a starting hint that there might be also potential living things on other planets. While it's interesting, finding extraterrestrial life isn't what Josephine is interested in. She's interested in microorganisms that live in these harsh conditions on Earth that mimic space. We want to use uh, genetically engineered microbes to mine minerals from space. Yep, you heard her. Microbes to mine minerals from space. There's several studies uh, done by NASA, I think, that shows that there are really valuable minerals on uh, some asteroids, like platinum, gold. So 
depending on the value of that uh, minerals on on the uh, celestial bodies you can potentially put these microbes on these types of asteroids and then bring back the minerals to earth using microbes to mine minerals from asteroids seems like some kind of crazy science fiction goal but actually Using microbes to mine minerals is something we already do on Earth. Australia has a long established expertise in the mining biotechnology. The same technology can be translated to other areas such as space. So how does the technology work? And what exactly do these little microscopic miners do? So on Earth, these microbes, so they oxidize the iron and use this iron to grow. So it's like uh, their food. Yep. These microbes derive their energy from oxidizing iron and other materials. Basically, it's how they breathe. They are different uh, than human. They don't necessarily need oxygen. They can use carbon dioxide or other sources to survive. So that's what makes them special. It was a scientist named Kenneth Temple in the 1950s who saw that they were special when he discovered that some microorganisms have these mechanisms for sensing and taking up metals for use in their own cell. And then by doing this in their process, uh, they can then solubilize the metals uh, that is usually inside the rock. So the mining industry doesn't really need a big hammer to destroy the, the rocks. Yeah, the metabolism of these little bad boys makes the metals soluble and therefore easier to extract. Just because there are microbes living in extremely harsh conditions on Earth that mimic space, it doesn't mean they can survive there. Yet. These microbes have evolved for million or billion years on Earth, meaning they are adapted under gravitational of Earth. Whereas if you think on the, on the moon or on the Mars, they have different gravitational forces. So in the first step of the project, we want just to see whether biomining microbes can tolerate uh, microgravity. And if yes, or if they show any different phenotype or different performance, we can then use uh, this data to construct uh, new GMOs that can able to uh, resist under space-like conditions. So to prepare the future microscopic miners for space, Josephine has been conducting simulated microgravity experiments at CSIRO. And she says they're so tough. So you can just leave them uh, on the bench for months. Uh, if you forget to put them fresh media, they still can survive. And that's what makes us think that it can uh, be suitable for space applications. Because, I mean, like you need something that's reliable and don't need much maintenance, especially if you don't have that much resources on space. And now the mini microbial miners are almost ready for phase two. But then the next phase of the project is we plan to send these microbes uh, on into the International Space Station. We need to validate the experiment by sending them to the International Space Station. And if these genetically engineered microorganisms can survive in space, mining asteroids is just the beginning of their potential. Well, many scientists are looking ways to generate the basic things for survival, such as water or oxygen or even fuel. Hang on. Fuel? 
What kind of fuel? Uh, it could be like uh, methane or hydrogen. I think methane can be used as a fuel rocket. Wow. So these little microbes could be fueling rockets. Yeah. <laughs> Needs a lot of uh, process in between. But yeah, we hope uh, one day they could do that. Space exploration is expensive and resource intensive. So being able to grow food in space, mine materials and create these fuel sources is all about sustaining longer space missions. But microgravity is just one of the many challenges. Like we might be able to generate uh, microbes that can tolerate microgravity, but uh, to generate the microbes that can tolerate microgravity and the pressure and the heat and the radiations that uh, and other extreme conditions that makes things getting harder and harder. It's also getting harder and harder here on Earth. Well, I think if we were starting to contemplate a seed bank in space, then things must be getting pretty bad on Earth. And the reality is, absolutely, we are consistently losing our genetic diversity. In the seed bank here, we have just over 5,300 native species. Uh, in the Millennium Seed Bank, they've got just over 39,000 wild species. So their aim is to have 25% of the world's native plants in there by 2020. So it's, it's a big project and we're contributing to that. Seed banks like the one at the Australian Plant Bank are popping up all around the world as they're being increasingly seen as an effective plant conservation strategy. I mean, everyone's heard of the Doomsday Vault in, in the Arctic Circle, uh, which is focused on crops, and that's really important. But th the wild genetic diversity is particularly important, and we find time and time again uh, in crop breeding programs or plant breeding programs that if, the, if there's disease issues, Regularly, they go back to the wild germplasm for you know, unique genotypes. Yeah, you might look around and think there are heaps of plants, but it's not necessarily just about the numbers. It's about the genetic diversity. So those wild genotypes are really valuable. And, and in terms of adaptation, and particularly when we're, we're doing cropping or growing plants in a changing climate, those wild genes well, that adaptability that we're capturing in seeds is particularly important. But seed banks aren't just for storing seeds in the event a species disappears in the wild. It's a dynamic facility. And now in particular we're finding in New South Wales here, we're using our seed collections for re-establishing threatened species in the wild. Some of the species are a very restricted habitat, which may be under threat. So as, as an insurance policy, we have them in the seed bank but also we actually go out and find additional habitat that's suitable for the species and then we'll go through the process of germinating the seed, growing young small plants and actually planting them out in the wild. You know, we are living in the Anthropocene and humans are having a massive impact so seed banks and seed collections are really going to be important, important currency for the future. So. Does that mean we should forget about space exploration and 
Just focus on protecting what we have here on Earth. I've heard a few TV commentators say, you know, why are we going to go to Mars? Mars is a terrible place to live compared to here. That's just true. There's not going to be a place that's accessible, you know, that's going to be better for us to live than here. This is the best place. We have to protect this place, you know. But the perspective from space, you know, looking back on the Earth helps us appreciate it. Um, and, you know, it's not that we're trying to move a whole population to Mars. Um, but that exploration, you know, ultimately is, is going to be a backup plan, you know, for, uh, for, for life on Earth. And, uh, and I think the, the fact that we're able to, to look at Earth and other planets uh, allows us to understand the changes that are happening here. I mean, we're monitoring the Earth from space all the time, uh, studying what's happening to the Earth, how it's changing, uh, whether it's human-caused problems or natural changes, you know, we're able to monitor it from space. Even though Greg has done and seen things the majority of us never will, he shares his love and experiences of space with people. And Aussie seeds aren't the only things he's taken up there. I was going for the long duration flight and NASA asked me, they said, last minute, they said, we have some extra room. Uh, so I thought about it. And also my family in Montreal owns the oldest bagel bakery in Canada. And I just thought, I'll take bagels. <laughs> and, uh, and they contacted them and they made special ones that had a little more preservatives. Did you get to yeah. eat them? Oh yeah, shared them with everybody. We had a, yeah, it was great, yeah. And there was something else he took to space that is pretty special. President Obama had a, a Hanukkah party at the White House and we were invited to this um, before the launch. So I got to talk to him and to Michelle Obama for a few minutes. and. And I asked them if they had been to a launch before, and they hadn't. And so I, I said, you really should go. This is going to be one of the last shuttle launches. You really should come see it. And they did. So after I talked to them, I thought, you know, I should offer to fly something. I, so I ended up flying a brooch for Michelle Obama, you know, and, and I got to give it back to them after the mission. You don't need to be an astronaut or send seeds to space or mine minerals from an asteroid to be fascinated by it. From movies like Star Wars to songs like Bowie's Life on Mars, space is somehow everywhere and all it takes is to look up at the stars at night and it sparks this sense of wonder and mystery and possibilities. It was really a, a great story for us to think about the journey of our Australian seeds with, you know, from an evolutionary journey, also a journey into space and how we're, we're looking after our biodiversity, you know, our plants, it's, it's, it's a really important message. I still also want to explore other planets, but some part of mine still also want to conserve the place that, that we live in. So it's a, it's a unique habitat. The neat thing about being up there on the space station that, that I miss is that every day you feel like you're really contributing something. Yeah, space exploration is just as much about you know, planet Earth as it is about anything out there. I wish other people could see what I've seen. I wish other people could have the perspective because when you see the Earth from space and you, you get a sense of I mean, how amazing it is, but how how, how precious it is, and how how um, exposed it is, how alone it is. You know, you you really feel the sense of the responsibility we have because we're really the only species that understands 
this and can take care of it. No one else is taking care of the planet. This is a different perspective and I, you know, uh, I wish everyone can see the earth that way. Thanks for listening to Branch Out and exploring space with our stellar lineup of guests. You can follow Greg, NASA, and CSIRO on social media to keep satisfying your space curiosity. Also, if you're interested in visiting the Australian Plant Bank and checking out the seed bank and science, head to the Australian Botanic Gardens website for more info. Next episode, we are really branching out and we're actually going to switch things up a bit literally switch things up. You're going to hear an awesome episode from another podcast show, but I don't want to give away too much, so just make sure you hit subscribe. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and I produced this episode of Branch Out. Branch Out.